You're listening to a live audio recording from Women's Bible Fellowship at LEFC. This is the wrap-up teaching for week four, covering Numbers chapters 13 through 15. So here we are at the edge of the promised land. And the sadness of these chapters is overwhelming. At least I felt just even this week like overwhelmed. Um, Yeah, just by the sadness, they were on the edge of the promised land and they had just left Sinai um, and they were supposed to go in, supposed to go in and and be there and be God's people in his land. So it's be a little bit of a downer at times, but yeah, we're going to, I think there's a lot to be learned from here and um, it's good for us to study this and then see how it points to Christ. So it goes with, I think we need to address that the goal of the mission to explore the land was not to see if they could take the land, right? God had already promised this land to them a long, long time ago to their forefathers. He reminded them again in chapter 13, verse one, the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. It was already going to be their land. They were supposed to be going to spy out. They were not supposed to be going to spy out whether or not the land was theirs. So then I think, like we've talked about, we have to ask ourselves then, why did God have them spy out the land in the first place? Was it for testing? Was it to get them excited about, this is the land I'm giving to you? Or also for military reasons. Um, They didn't wanna just go in and fight blindly as they did, as we see them do then at the end of chapter 14, where they're just, we're gonna go take it. So I think there is more than one answer to this question, but Hebrews, Hebrews does tell us in chapter three, verse eight, that God was testing them in the desert. This was a time of testing. So I don't think it's a stretch to say that it was a test of their faith in God. And we're given clues right away to how this is going to go because we get this poetic language in chapter 13 and we didn't address this as much, but Moses's language about, is it gonna be good or bad, rich or poor? But God had already told them that the land was going to be good and it was flowing with milk and honey. So then, Let's talk about this report. There were 12 spies, and like many groups or committees, we end up with not one consensus, but we have a majority and a minority report. So they return, they return from their journey, and they can all agree on a couple facts. The land is good, and the people are scary. (laughs) Um, But beyond those facts, then the, the reports vary quite a bit. And we have Joshua, Joshua and Caleb being that minority report and then the other 10 being the majority. And it says that they spread a bad report. So what is this bad report? Um, And in this report, basically, the focus is on themselves. The focus is on them. They say, we can't take the land. The inhabitants, they're too large. We're like grasshoppers to them. They're stronger than us. They even say, the land devours those living in it. Like, think about that one for a while. I think you can skip over that, but the land actually eats the people living in it. The, f- the focus is on themselves and that they can't take the land. But then we look at Joshua and Caleb and what is different about their report? They say, yes, the people are big, but the Lord is with us. And in 1330, Caleb says, let us go up at once and occupy it because we are well able to overcome it. And in 14.9, Joshua then says, do not be afraid of the people of the land because we will swallow them up 
Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. So they agree on the facts with the other 10, but they differ in their report because their focus is not on themselves or the inhabitants of the land, but on the God who has proven himself to be faithful and trustworthy and powerful. So their perspectives were opposite because of what or who they were focusing on and where they were placing their faith. And this helps us then see exactly what that sin was and, why, and then why God is so offended by it. So their sin, what was their sin? As we said, it is their unbelief. It is their straight up unbelief. They did not believe that God is who he says he is and that he would do what he said he would do. God said that he was giving them the land and they basically said, no, it's not possible. The majority of the spies totally left God out of the equation in their report entirely. They forgot him and they only saw what was right in front of their eyes. And unfortunately then the people were persuaded by this report rather than Joshua and Caleb who really pleaded with them. They chose to listen and believe man rather than trust in the words of God. And they forgot God and did not believe him. In other words, they feared man more than they had the fear of the Lord. So let's look at, we didn't talk about this a whole lot uh, in our discussion, but let's look at what the people actually say in 14, one to four, because this is interesting, isn't it? In their unbelief, they completely reject God's plan for them. They say it would be better if they were back in Egypt or even if, they, even, Lord, if, even if we could just die in this desert. They even want to elect a new leader. This is the part where it gets really crazy. They want to elect a new leader and go back to Egypt, reversing the exodus. So basically they refuse to enter the land and they reject the Lord entirely. Um, yeah. And then it gets, it gets ironic when the Lord responds, but so let's look at his response and let's look at that dialogue between God and Moses. Cause I definitely want to, I want to harp on this for a little while. What the Lord says to them before they actually elect this new leader, before they actually end up heading back to be slaves in Egypt again, right? There's a lot to look at in chapter 14. God appears before them and tells Moses that he's going to destroy them all and start over with Moses and make a great nation out of him. Now we know this doesn't happen because Moses then intercedes for the people and the way, the way he intercedes is really interesting. Did you guys catch this? He calls upon God and reminds God of who he is and that God is unchanging and his unchanging characteristics as a side note, he's also concerned for the Lord's reputation among the nations, but I'm not going to focus on that, but just know that that little, that little snippet is there, and you saw that. We know, too, that God does not need reminding of who he is, and it is easy to get caught up in this debate over whether or not God changes his mind, and Karen said, no, he doesn't, so, <laughs> and you're right, what, it's, but it's easy to get stuck on this, whether or not God changes his mind. We've come up against this before in Exodus, and it's a part of the pattern here that we have in Numbers. And this pattern is that God gives commands, followed by the disobedience, and then the punishment, and then intercession, and then finally mercy. And so I think we can be distracted here by trying to figure out whether or not Moses changed God's mind and missed the point. And the point here is that the people are not able to enter the land because they are an unbelieving people and they are in need of an intercessor on their behalf. The point two is that God is a God who is forgiving and merciful 
as he reminds Moses in 14, 17 to 19. And this is what we call the long name of God, the long name of God. So Moses says this about God, and this is the part from here in Numbers, because then I'm going to take us to Exodus for a second. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love, and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. So this is part of the long name of God. And now I'm going to take us back to Exodus for a minute, because I want to go back to where God first reveals this long name of God to Moses. It's in Exodus 32, while Moses is up on Mount Sinai, and the people decide to make a golden calf and worship the golden calf. And, you know, there's a lot more to that story, but <laughs> later in chapter 34, the Lord actually first reveals this long name to Moses when Moses is interceding for the people. And here's the full version. The Lord, the Lord, this is 34 verses 6 and 7 of Exodus. The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. So the point I want to make here is that God is punishing and he is also forgiving. He punishes and he forgives. And this is a theme throughout Numbers and all of scripture. He has to punish sin because sin cannot be in his presence. But as he says, he also forgives. And not only does he forgive, but his forgiveness is a thousand more times than he is punishing. So the point here is that he is exponentially more forgiving than he is punishing. But he does do both. And we see that a lot in Numbers. So God punishes and God forgives. And his people are in need of an intercessor. So Moses intercedes for the people, and he calls upon God to do what God has says that he does. In 14, going for now on, I'll be talking about numbers again. In 14, verse 19, he says, In accordance with your great love, Lord, forgive the sins of these people, just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. So he's saying, in, in my summary, Lord, you've been forgiving. Forgive again. Forgive again, God. And so in the next verse, then we see God does, in fact, forgive. I mean, right there in verse 20, he says, I have forgiven them. But he still does punish the people. Um, yeah, we know that ultimately this theme of punishing, interceding, and forgiving is satisfied by Christ, our perfect intercessor, who pays the price of our punishment. But let's finish the story before we talk about that more. So the Lord does not completely annihilate his people, but he chooses to continue to be their God and dwell with them. But every person in that generation, 20 years and up, would die in the desert. And the people would wander in the desert for 40 years, which, as we know, is one year for each day that they were in the land, the spies were in the land. God, this is the ironic part, he gave them exactly what they said they wanted, to die in the desert. And instead of going into Canaan, then they went back towards the Red Sea. And the children that they said would be captured were then actually the children who entered the land. And the spies who spread the, ba who spread the bad report were struck down. But Joshua and Caleb were spared. And what was it about Joshua and Caleb's response that was different? 
They did fundamentally agree that the land was good and the people were scary. But the difference is that they did not leave God out of the equation, but they chose to believe God and take him at his word. They saw all the same things, but they had that different spirit that followed God wholeheartedly. So I think we have to ask ourselves then, what does it mean to have a different spirit and follow God wholeheartedly? And I've been, I've been thinking a lot about this because we all have difficult circumstances in our lives. And regardless of the circumstances, we all have sin and we all live in this world, which is just difficult at times. And when faced with life's happenings, I don't think having a different spirit means that we just pretend that life isn't difficult. But rather, we can see the difficulty, but we also, we also see the truth, right? So Joshua and Caleb agreed that the people were large, but they knew that God had promised to give them the land, and they chose to believe God's voice rather than to give in to their fears. So I think we too can see the difficult things in this world and in our lives and choose to remind ourselves of the truth of who God says he is and that we have an eternal home that we are not at yet. So the difficult things are still here, and we don't have to pretend they're not real, but we can also choose then to believe that God is good and that he is sovereign. So I think having a different spirit is a matter of our hearts towards God in the midst of life circumstances. So in summary, life is hard, but he is with us. Amen? So, oh, thanks for the response, <laughs> keeping me going. Sorry, this is long. I didn't mean for this to be so long. So what was their response? Now let's look at what the people do in response to God's punishment, because now, we address this, but it can be easy to miss what's happening here. God tells them in 1425 to turn back towards the desert along the Red Sea. But then at the end of chapter 14, the people try to, they try to go into the land on their own. They try to take the land in their own power without God. And the author is sure to tell us that neither Moses nor the ark go with them. So this is another act of unbelief. It's like the same, it's like act, unbelief act two. First, they're refusing to enter the land because of unbelief. Now they're trying to enter the land because of unbelief. They want, they want to fix it and make it right with God. I'm sorry, God, I'm actually going to do it now. So we can, we can see this in our own lives, right? Can't we? We do this when we try to do the right thing, but out of our own power. So not with that different spirit, not with that heart that is after God. And this is another form of legalism trying to make ourselves right and procure our own righteousness without the Holy Spirit, a righteousness that is self-made. So now that we've covered all the difficult and depressing things, let's look ahead to the hope that is presented in these chapters. First off, we see that God is still going to dwell with them, and he still is going to take his people into his promised land eventually. It's just going to be, his promises are not stopped, they are just, they are delayed. We see that God is merciful and patient, forgiving of sins. And we see that in Joshua and Caleb, an example of how to trust him and have that different spirit. And just real quick, we're going to go into chapter 15. It looks a little random at first, but if we look closer, we can see some of the blessings and also warnings that are actually very fitting coming on the heels of this story. Let's look first at what God says in verse 2. He says, speak to the Israelites and say to them, after you enter the land, I am giving you as a home. So the promise of the land still stands. God promised this land to his people and he will be faithful. He still longs to dwell with his people. Praise God. 
And then notice how the whole first section of the chapter is all about the sacrifices that they're going to bring before the Lord. All these extra sacrifices on top of the other ones, showing the abundance that they're going to have in the land. In 19, verse 19, he says, when you eat the food of the land, they're going to eat the food of the land and there's going to be a lot of it. Take, present a cake from the first of your ground meal. He's showing us how blessed they will be and that he wants to have fellowship with them in these sacrifices. I almost picture them like having a meal together um, as the aroma goes. We didn't talk about that, but the aroma goes up to the Lord. So I think this random, seemingly random section is showing us how he will bring his people into the land so that they can be in relationship with him. He's showing us the purpose and to obey him. And it's to obey God. To obey God's law is not to be in bondage. Rather, it brings life, freedom, and fellowship with God. So then on the flip side, we have this next section that deals with complete defiance against the Lord. First, it deals with the unintentional sin. And then after that, sins out of a defiant heart. And then this case study of the man who is breaking the Sabbath. And this is where we squirm, because we, when we read this, we don't get it right away. He's just picking up sticks. Like, I don't know if any of you have ever picked up sticks on a Sunday, or maybe you've ran the vacuum or folded your laundry. It makes us squirm a little. It, make, it made me squirm. And I think we can wrongly interpret this passage then by trying to make a list of all the things that we can and can't do to make ourselves right with God. But what needs to be focused on here ultimately is our hearts. So rather than getting into a long discussion about Sabbath, I want to just focus on that the sacrifices do not atone for what he calls a high-handed sin, where a person's heart knows what is right and defiantly disobeys God, doing what verse 31 says, and despising the word of the Lord. So despising God and despising his commands. So it's a defiant heart that despises the Lord that we are dealing with here. And God says, don't, don't do that. Don't openly defy me and have your heart against me. And so have a heart that longs to obey and is repentant for your sins. And so I see repentance as being the remedy here, a repentant heart. And then we have the tassels that they're commanded to wear to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord. So the tassels bring us to another theme in Numbers, which is to remember the Lord and his commands. So it's worth saying here that we don't really understand the idea of a, the idea of a tassel to begin with. <laughs> but I read that back in those times, the hem of the garment was very significant in that it was a part of the person's identity. Um, the tassel would then identify them as belonging to God. So in verse 40, he tells them, so you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. So the tassels serve to remind them that one, they are God's people by his grace to them and two, to be set apart as holy to obey his commands. When we remember who God is and what he's done and who we are in light of him, I think that will lead us to have that obedient and repentant heart rather than a heart that is defiant against the Lord and unbelieving. So let's just end with some application here. There's a lot we can apply to our lives from these passages. We can see that obedience to God is life-giving and that a repentant heart is what he longs for. We're seeing again that grumbling is a contagious and harmful sin, but I think our biggest takeaway here is just that we need to believe God. Will we take him at his word? Will we believe what he has said to us in his word? Will we believe in his promises? Because Christ has come and he has defeated sin and death on our behalf, 
And John 20, 21 tells us that by believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, we will have life in his name. And in John 14, 2, Jesus tells us that he is going to his Father's house to prepare a place for us. So scripture tells us that Christ has finished the work on our behalf and has told us that he is coming back and that we will enter our eternal promised land with him. Sounds familiar, right? So will we take him at his word? And will we believe that he is who he says he is and that he will do what he says he will do? So I just want to leave us with this charge from Hebrews. Uh, These chapters from Numbers, this generation who refused to enter the promised land sort of becomes the poster child for unbelief in the New Testament. The author of Hebrews says, don't be like them. Don't turn your hearts away from God. Don't have an unbelieving heart. In Hebrews 3, verse 12, he says, see to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you can be, may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. For we have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly to the end the confidence that we had at first. As has just been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. So Hebrews gives us, it's, this is perfect when scripture interprets scripture for us. Hebrews gives us like the perfect interpretation of what is happening here in Numbers. And it's a great place to go to help us understand this part of the Bible. All of chapter 3 and chapter 4 speak to this. The author charges us to strive catch this, to strive to enter his rest. And this striving is believing in Christ and his work. So let us believe in Christ and his finished work. Let us encourage one another and be confident in who Christ is because he too was tested in the desert for 40 days, but he remained sinless and overcame that time of testing. We, however, will continue to be sinful and unbelieving, but now our sins have been laid on Christ. And in Christ, justice and mercy find their answer. And we don't have to try to be righteous out of our own strength on one hand, and we don't have to wallow in our sins because we have Christ's righteousness to cover us and we have his sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. So while this story is sad and difficult, it finds its answer in Christ. And, our li- and while our lives can be sad and they can be difficult, we can find our endurance, our joy, and our answers in Christ and we can look to him to put our trust in him to take us to our eternal home, our promised land. So, will you pray for us? God, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for your promises. And will you help us to be a generation of believing people, um, unlike those that we read about today. Lord, I pray that you would um, just seal that on our hearts, um, that you are with us, you are guiding us, Lord, Will we depend on you? Thank, help us in our, um, when we do have unbelief and we do have sin, Lord, would you show us those things and um, pull us back to you, God? Um, and, and Lord, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for um, what you have done for your son. And um, God, I just thank you for, for inviting us um, to also be with you and near to you. Lord, I just pray that you go with us this week, that we would. Um, just be lights for you and um, dive into these next chapters this next week. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.